I bought a picture of my great, great grandmother and my great, great grandmother. This is the oldest picture that my family has. And this is my link to slavery. This reminds me every day and it's reminded me my whole life of where I came from and how far we've come. It's reminded me of, as the song says, treading a path through the blood of the slaughter. This is the blood. This is whose blood I've been treading a path through that we got here through her. So I always remember when I look at this picture, I remember, I think about what all she had to go through to get me here. And then I think about what strength do I have in me? Am I being all that I can be to make sure that my kids and my grandkids and my great grandkids and my great great grandkids get, they go further than me. They go further than I could even imagine. She couldn't imagine me. And I'm hoping that I am creating a family that I can't imagine. So this is important to me. These people who survived the transatlantic slave trade, who, who, who survived chattel slavery, these people were extraordinary, extraordinary. So every day this picture sits right by my front door. It's the first thing you see when you go come in my house, last thing you see when you go out. And it is to remind you, nobody Nobody died for you to be ordinary. These people were extraordinary and you should live every single day of your life trying to be the same, trying to live up to that. You live every single day of your life in gratitude for that. Welcome to Our Seven Neighbors Season 2, Stories from the Black Spiritual Diaspora. In partnership with the Muslim Wellness Foundation and Bayon Islamic Graduate School, the Interreligious Institute at Chicago Theological Seminary presents a new season of our podcast, Our Seven Neighbors. This season is hosted by Dr. Camila Mukman Rashad. We are so glad you're here. You just heard a story from this week's guest, Rabbi Tamar Manasseh, a story about a photo we asked her to share. My name is Kim Schultz, and I am producing this podcast as the coordinator of creative initiatives at the Interreligious Institute. And now the conversation that follows between Dr. Rashad and Rabbi Manasseh will take you on a ride. So if you're ready, let's listen in. My name is Dr. Camila Mukmin Rashad, and I am the Visiting Assistant Professor of Psychology and Muslim Studies at Chicago Theological Seminary. And I am so thrilled to host the second season of Our Seven Neighbors. And this season, we're exploring the Black spiritual diaspora, and we will be sharing rich, dynamic, and really, really beautiful stories from members of the Black community, folks of African descent, and all of the spiritual traditions that meet in the crossroads. Today, I am honored and humbled to have with me Rabbi Tamar Manasseh. And we just heard just a little bit of that story of Mama Hannah. So Rabbi Tamar, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. This is terrific. It is so good to have you here. And I'm going to dig right in because I think our listeners need to hear more about Mama Hannah, the legend <laughs> it, it appears to be. Tell me more of what you know about her and also her spiritual lineage. Well, Mama Hannah was a born an enslaved American, right? And she was very religious. That, that's the story. She was deeply religious. 
And they say that even when she moved out of Mississippi, because her husband was actually a bootlegger. And so he wasn't so religious. Right. And so she moved to Detroit with um, a couple of her children. And they said she was so religious that twice a year she would go back down south to go to revivals because it was so important to her to be still be a part of that, to still spiritually be connected to that community. And she was very active in Detroit in the church, but her home was Mississippi. And she would go back twice a year just for revival. And my mother met her once when she was a little girl. And she always talks about how important it was for her. It was important for Mama Hannah to know all of her grandchildren, all her great grandchildren, all the great. She needed to know everybody. Mm. It was important even then that she impressed upon my mother, like, you have to remember, you have to stay together. You have to know your people. You got to keep up with your people. Wow. And so yes. in my mother's generation, she was the one who kept up with our people. And now it's my turn. Wow. So can you tell me a little bit about, you said she was active in the church. What was her denomination? She was Baptist. And in a time like that, it was a lot of that. Those people were very religious because the thing was, if you didn't have God, you didn't have anything. Mm. Because how can one even survive Jim Crow in slavery without God? When everything else is set against you, mm-hmm. if you have no God, you have nothing. You're conquered. You're defeated. You're over with. Yes. How do you even live? And so that was the idea. It, it, we might not have had anything else, but we had God. And that was always the idea. That was always the idea in my family, even necessarily if, you know, people weren't um, so active in their spirituality or in their religion. It was still God was still a major thing in our family, major. And I think that that kind of came from her. Wow. And that's such a beautiful sort of lineage for her to pass on so many generations. So just for a moment, I want you to imagine that your life is a story, a novel, a movie even, right? And so let's think about for a second, this novel of your life has a title, right? It has a table of contents. It has chapters. So first question is, what would be the title of your life story? See, that's funny because there is actually a movie about my life and the name of it is They Ain't Ready For Me. It's <laughs> really. All right. Now, Rabbi, you're going to have to, you're going to have to tell us a little bit more. <laughs> that is really the name of the movie. They Ain't Ready For Me. And, and the thing is, it actually came from a Bruno Mars song because I really love that song. And the producer of the movie heard the song and I was singing it. He was like, boom, that is the name of this movie. And it's kind of like, no one's ever ready for a black Jewish girl with big hair and pinions. You know, they're not really ever really ready for that, right? In order. <laughs> you, you know, so it is, uh, it is the idea, you know, sometimes in, um, I see it a lot in Judaism that, Sometimes black people feel like in order to be a Jew, you have to pick, you have to choose. Mm. If you're a Jew, you have to forego being black. If you're black, you have to forego being a Jew. And and it's hard for some people to synthesize the two and to be equally, to be made up equally of both of those things. And it's kind of like, I am so unapologetically either that it's overwhelming for a lot of people. So it is normally I will say things that 
they just are not ready for. And mm-hmm. as they're as natural as anything for me, it just makes perfect sense for me. But this is coming, you know, growing up black and Jewish, you kind of grow up. I grew up interstitially between these two peoples. It wasn't like it was like growing up bicultural. Right. Mm-hmm. And it, it was like black people had a problem with black kids being Jewish because it's like, hey, when I was like seven, you know, it's like, hey, you know, the Jews killed Jesus. I mean, I'm seven. Oh, this is not normally a conversation you have with a seven year old. Right. Right. But that's how black people felt. It was almost like being a Jew was a betrayal to wow. everything that we'd be in. Mm-hmm. It was a betrayal to the Jesus who bought us out of slavery. It was a be- betrayal. It was just a betrayal to our history. And so as a seven-year-old, I mean, like, how do you defend yourself against that? And I'm like, right. how do you know? Were you there? Like, that was like all <laughs> I could do, right? Right. And it's kind of like being, but being around white Jews at the same time, it was kind of like, you know, you're black and black people aren't there, no black Jews. Like, that's not a thing. And <sighs> me having to be in a place where I wasn't fully accepted by either I learned how to be alone really, really well. So I saw the flaw in the black community and I saw the flaw in the Jewish community. I saw what needed to be fixed in the black community and I saw what needed to be fixed in the Jewish community. So I can say things that speak to both of those and people normally are just not ready for that because most people are one or the other, but they're never really both of those things, Right. right? And, you know, that resonates so strongly with me because I remember my family being the only Black Muslim family in elementary school and people sort of making fun of the way my mother was dressed and, you know, why don't you celebrate Christmas and you don't have Easter. Um, And the object that I actually brought was a picture of my fifth grade class picture. And fully, you know, I'm wearing a white kimar and, you know, my blue uniform. And my background is actually a Christmas tree. And I just thought, did no one think, perhaps not for the Muslim child? Right, Um, right. And so, you know, that kind of in-betweenness, right, but also being very deeply connected and claiming both, um, often I felt in my life story took time to evolve, right, given the different sort of transitions in my life. Um, So I wondered when you were seven, like thinking about yourself as that seven-year-old girl and someone just said like, well, the Jews killed Jesus, right? How do you absorb sort of the hurt of that? And who do you talk to about it? You know what? I don't think it was necessarily hurt. I think I might've even been appalled. I think Mm. I just was like, are you serious? I thought people were smarter than that when I was seven. Like I really did. I thought they were smarter and I was just like disappointed. Like, what are you even saying right now? Mm. And you learn very early on. You grow up really quickly when you're different from the people that you're around. You're different from other kids. You grow up quick. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of like, for me, like I had a picture. I had a picture of my Anna in my head, right? I had ideas of that because all around me, I went to a Jewish school in Hyde Park and I lived at Inglewood. So, of mm-hmm. course, none of the kids from around my house went to school with me. Like right. that just wasn't a thing. But there was this picture that my uncle painted of Nefertiti before he died. And it was on the wall. It hung on the wall in our house when I was growing up. And once again, I would see it when I was going out. I would see it when I was coming in. And I went to a black temple all my life. So I grew up going to this temple. I understood at the same time roots was coming out. Right. So 
the way that I drew this in my head, I knew that I was an African, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Nefertiti was an African, right? An African queen. And I was an African. And then I watched Roots. And I understood that, okay, these people started off in Africa and then they ended up here. My family ended up in Mississippi. My family ended up in Maryland and in Virginia and in South Carolina and North Carolina and Mm -hmm. all of those places, right? So it was easy. I had a visual because I was able to connect. Okay, at Temple, we talk about the Jews coming out of Egypt. And at Temple, I learned that Egypt is in Africa. Mm -hmm. Those were Africans who were there. Those were Africans that came up out of there. And I learned that, right? So then there's this movie, The Ten Commandments. So I'm black. I'm five years old. I'm learning all about these people who came out of Egypt that were black. But then I see a movie and it's all these white people who... And no one looks like you. That doesn't make sense. That, that, That doesn't make sense, right? So if we can agree, if the movie can agree that the children of Israel were in Egypt. And this is what I was taught. Only part they left out is they were African, right? So I have a connection to history, to the Bible, right? As This is all as a five-year-old. This is happening in my five-year-old brain. Right. And so now I'm watching Roots. They came from Africa. The children of Israel were in bondage in Africa. So, hey, that must be the people that they went and got. Right. Mm. So that is my connection. That's how I connected Mississippi with Africa. And I went to Mississippi three or four times a year because that's where my father's family is. So I was always going to visit to do something, to be there. It was a funeral or wedding or just to go visit cousins or my grandmother. It was I was always there. So I was able I go to Mississippi. There were slaves in Mississippi. The slaves came from Africa. And in Africa, that is where the children of Israel were in bondage. Mm. So. You can imagine what I was like when I got to Akiva Schechter Jewish day school and everybody was white. I hadn't seen a white Jew up until that day in my, never. And I was in kindergarten and it was like, it was like, whoa, did you say that you're a Jew? How? Like you can't be because in my mind, Jews Mm. came out of Africa and then they went to Mississippi and then they came here. So exactly how did you get to be a Jew? So it took a long time for me to square that circle. And it took a long time for me to accept that. And I tell them all the time, if I can accept that, if I can accept you being a Jew, you need to figure out how to accept me being one. I I know that's right. (laughs) And it was, that was hard for me, right? But once I came to terms with that, it was kind of like I understood who I was so much that I felt for, I felt sorry for people who couldn't understand. I understood them better than almost I understood myself. I, I know why I'm not you. I know me so well. I know why I'm not you. And you just kind of don't understand. And I thought you would get it because adults mm. are just supposed to understand everything. But sometimes they don't. So I want to ask you about the adults in your immediate family. Um, when you talk about your your spiritual lineage, beginning with with Mama Hannah and her devotion, right as mm-hmm. as a Baptist Christian, how did that lineage also include right the way that you were being raised? Right how was how was that sort of religious and spiritual question in your family like unfolding? Actually, my mother 
And um, her siblings were actually like raised Catholic because my grandmother, Mama Hannah was my father's great grandmother, my grandfather's great grandmother. So but not my grandmother. And my grandmother was the one who was pretty much responsible for the religion of the kids, any spirituality, Mm -hmm. because my grandfather just wasn't that wasn't his thing. He wasn't into that. And they were raised Catholic, but my mother was always a questioner. That w- that's her thing. It, there were all of these mysteries of Catholicism that could not be answered and she needed answers. But how we came to Judaism, it came purely out of American racism. My uncle was shot in his shoulder in uh, 1969. Hmm. He fell down the stairs of the L platform when he was shot. They called the, at that time, they didn't call ambulances for black people. They called the police wagons, right? So they, the police wagon comes, they throw them in there. It doesn't have shocks, right? So now they take him from 63rd and Halstead, probably about five or six miles to the Cook County Hospital. By the time he got there, there, the bullet had bounced over during the trip and locked in his spinal cord. He never walked again. He was 19 mm-hmm. years old and they amputated his legs. Oh my gosh, how brutal. And this guy, he was tall, he was handsome. They called him Crazy Legs because he could dance and he was only 19. And it was, how do I now, if my life was my legs and I don't have my legs anymore, who am I? Who wow. am I? And he was in Schwab Rehabilitation Center, which is a part of uh, Mount Sinai Hospital, I believe. Yeah, but he was in Mount Sinai Hospital in a rehabilitation wing. And um, the chaplain came around, who was a rabbi, to talk to him one day. And, you know, he was really, they didn't expect for him to live that long. And it wasn't necessarily just because of the injuries, but because his spirit was crushed. Yeah. And it's, wow. it's like, how do you live? I mean, his spirit was amputated. It wasn't just Mm -hmm. his legs. It was, how do you live that way? So he tells this rabbi, you know, if I can be, if I, you know, if you can bring me back, you show me a black Jewish rabbi and I'll be a Jew. The rabbi came back two weeks later with a black rabbi. Oh, and the rest was history. Wow. And that gave him purpose. And he started studying. He started learning. And he and my mother were very close. And that's how they got here. That's how it happened. And it was kind of like, you know, they talk about, they've talked about when he, when he was released from the rehabilitation hospital and he came home, it was like, you know, my grandmother made this big feast for him, all of the things that he loves to eat. But it was kind of like, you know, there were greens with like ham hocks and Uh it was, you know, (laughs) stuff like that. And it was like, well, I can't have this. Mm -hmm. And my grandmother felt rejected because- You know, I don't eat this anymore. And it's like, but, you know, you reject my food, you reject me. Right. And when he started to talk to her and help her understand it, my my grandmother said, those are the old ways. That sounds like the old ways. Oh, my gosh. That that just gave me chills. That sounds like the old ways. Back in, you know, North Carolina, when she was growing up, she had a grandmother who was 111 when she died. So there were slaves in my grandmother's life. And she said, that sounds like the old ways. You know, they never wore, they only wore skirts and dresses and they always kept the heads covered. And they were, it was, it was very much, 
it was an Old Testament thing. Yes. Right. These mm-hmm. were more Old Testament people. So it was very much like what my uncle was talking about. And my grandmother never became a Jew, but she was always very supportive of my mother and my uncle and, you know, the way that they were raising their families and very supportive of it. So much to the point that when she died, she had a Jewish funeral. Rabbi, I am rarely speechless, (laughs) but what you're describing honestly gives me chills. It is about sort of the ways that our traditions evolve and the way that, you know, in some ways that is ancestral, that is intergenerational, that the knowledge of what we know, right, from our ancestors still reside within us, almost like dormant, right? And then there's these, these critical incidents that just spark an idea, right? Just something that causes us to imagine different sort of spiritual possibilities and ways to connect with the divine and something blooms. So I'm, I'm amazed. Um, And it's, it's such a beautiful, tragically beautiful, right? Given the circumstances, um, but the way that your uncle was able to, to hold this moment, right? And have it be sort of transformative for him. And then ultimately for your entire family, But do you know, my uncle lived for 46 years after that, 46 years. And I always tell people he did it for me. He was David and I was Tamar. He did it for me. And it was kind of like my uncle was the one who helped my mother pay for me to go to Jewish day school. It was super important for Mm -hmm. me to do that for him. That meant everything to him. And it was kind of like, you know, this girl is, is going to be something different. It's something different about this girl. And I don't know if you're born different or it's the, the belief it's how much others believe that you can be different, that they plant that seed within you. And it was planted. And I, I learned from my uncle, Jews, black Jews don't convert. There's no such thing as that. We revert. We revert because who knows? Who knows who we were before we were packed into those ships? You don't get, especially if you're telling me Judaism came out of Africa. You mean to tell me no Africans were Jews that you put on those boats? Mm. So Mm -hmm. you don't get to tell me who I am. I tell you who I am. That's right. That's right. And I learned that from him. And there's so many similarities because Black Muslims also similarly will, you know, some will say we are just sort of reclaiming a tradition that was taken away yeah. um, and that there that there was such a, a breadth and a depth of spirituality and religion, right, amongst the people who were enslaved that we're finding our way back, right? Yeah. And these moments really sort of crystallize for us that it is a reclaiming. And I wonder what your uncle would say to you now that you're an ordained rabbi. Uh, He wouldn't say anything because he wouldn't be able to stop crying. He wouldn't be able to stop crying. My uncle died shortly before my son's bar mitzvah. And it was 13 years ago. And I, I, no, it was 10 years ago. Sorry. My son wore my uncle's prayer shawl at his bar mitzvah. Then when my daughter was about, no, when the baby was born, when my daughter's son was born, the baby was wrapped in my uncle's prayer shawl for his Mm. bread. The day I became ordained, 
I wore my uncle's tully. Hmm. And so he's always going to be with us. He's always going to be a part of our story. Always. And it was like, you know, I know that he was there. He was there. He lived. He literally lived for that. He literally lived to see. I planted this seed. So I know one day it's going to bloom. And that Mm. was the day that it bloomed. And I know that he was there for that. I know he saw it. I know he was proud. But if he would have been here in the flesh, I'm telling you, he wouldn't have been able to stop crying. I wouldn't have been able to understand anything he said the whole day. Oh, my gosh. So much pride and beauty and and joy in that moment. And and I also want to bring in Mama Hannah. What would you say to her? Right. In in sharing your story, which is also a manifestation of seeds that she planted. Yeah. What what would she say to you? What would you want to say to her? I would want to tell her, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for against all of the odds for being who you were, for staying who you were, for not letting it eat you up, for not Mm -hmm. letting it take you under, for not letting it defeat you. Because there were so many things that she was fighting against. And I want to thank her for always being stronger than those things. Mm-hmm. For the fight in her always being stronger than the fight that was coming at her. I want, to, I want to thank her for that. Because if she hadn't made it, I wouldn't be here. If she hadn't, if she hadn't made sure that they understood, find your people. Stay, stay close to your people. Keep your people close. Do you know? How many cousins that I found in Chicago that I'm related to, right? Just just doing research. And the thing about it that we don't really think a lot about is that one of my cousin's sons could have possibly killed one of my sons, could have killed my son. Oh, my. And a lot of that happens because we don't know our people. Hmm. As many young people die in Chicago every day, do you really think these kids aren't killing their own people? They're killing their families and they don't even know it. And the thing is, finding family, that's one less threat to my children. That's saying, that's putting my kids in front of your kids and saying, remember this face. This is your cousin. This is your cousin. Look out for your cousin. Take care of your cousin. You're going to do the same for them. That's important. And a lot of our kids feel so disconnected now that they don't have that. They feel like they're so in it in it by themselves. And that's where gangs and everything else come in. Like you have all of this family. You have all of these people. There was a study done. I, I think it was, um, was it Dr. Conrad Worrell? Somebody did a study in the 80s in Chicago. And they said 70% of the Black people in Chicago are related. I can believe because it. They only came from a few places during the migration. Right. Mm-hmm. And so you really have to ask yourself, who are you killing? Who are you killing? These aren't strangers. These That's such are your a people. sobering question. Such a sobering question. And and if it wasn't for her telling my mother, you got to know your people. You got to keep your people close. You got to hold it together. I wouldn't be doing it right now. Mm. I wouldn't have thought it was important, but it was so important for my mother. And it was kind of like, you know, I, I grew up asking questions. And my mother loved to talk about it. And my, you know, my aunts and uncles weren't really necessarily into that part, but my mother was. And so that's the thing that we share now. And it's kind of like, I'm looking to see who I'm going to pass that to. Yes. Right. 
because it's a lot of information and I need a lot of time to tell that story. So we got to start young. Yes. And start now. Yeah. Uh, so I want to ask you this question to kind of bring it full circle. You started by sharing the story of, of Mama Hannah and of your uncle who was just pivotal, right? In, mm-hmm. in a pivotal person in your own life story and journey. And you also mentioned that you hope that you can create a family that you couldn't possibly imagine. Mm-hmm. But I want you to. I want you to imagine your second great grandkids and they're sitting around and they're, they're telling stories about Mama Tamar who is an ordained Uh rabbi. Uh What do you think they're saying about you? What message has been just passed through the ages, through the generations that now they're speaking of you and the way they speak of Mama Hannah? I think they're going to say the fight in her was much stronger than the fight that was ever coming at her. Mm -hmm. I, I want them to say, you know, I see, I see her in my kids. I see her in myself. I want them to do that. I want to be something and somebody that they want to be like, that they want to see in themselves and in their families. I want to be that. Mm -hmm. And I want them to say, you know, she changed the world. The world was one way when she was born, but it had completely changed Mm -hmm. by the time she was gone because she changed it. And like when I was, when I was 12 years old, it was like, I set out on a mission. I made up my mind. And this is right around the time of my own bat mitzvah that, when I go, Judaism won't have a face. Hmm. It won't have a face. It won't look like anything. Just as Christianity doesn't look like anyone, Islam doesn't look like anyone, Judaism won't either. It won't hmm. either. So that is my mission. And before I'm done with everything, before I finish my mission here, before it's all finished, that's what's going to happen. When you think about Jews, when you think about the Jewish people, you're going to think about everyone. Yes. From Mississippi to Egypt. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. You're going to think about that. And so, I I mean, like, I really want that to be the message. I want them to know, like, the world, she changed the world. And if she could change the world, you know what? I have to definitely try. Hmm. I have to try to change it. So, yeah, that's what I hope. Poet Lucille Clifton wrote, say it clear. And it will be beautiful. And so as we share stories of our family, our spiritual lineages, um, reclaiming those parts of ourselves that were present but dormant, perhaps, I want to ask you, what do you want to say and make clear so that it is also beautiful? That the world will change and nobody can stop it from doing so. No one can get in the way of it. If it is the will of the creator, it's going to change. It's going to change. So, I mean, I think that's what I want to make clear. No amount of money can stop it. No amount of power can stop it. No one person can stop it. No million people can stop it. But the world, it definitely will change. And it will change for the better for for Africans all over the world. It's going to change for the better. Oh, absolutely. Beautiful. I mean, Amen. Ashe. Um, I, I pray it is so. And I am so thankful, Rabbi Tamar Manasseh, for your time, your beauty, your stories, your joy, your energy 
to share with our listeners on this season of Our Seven Neighbors, stories from the Black spiritual diaspora, and yours is among one of the stories that we will absolutely treasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So there you have it. Such a powerful conversation between Dr. Rashad and Rabbi Tamar Manasseh. Thank you so much for joining us. More information on our guest, the rabbi, as well as her formative photo that she shared the story about can be found at OurSevenNeighbors.com. And check out Chicago Theological Seminary at ctschicago.edu. We hope you will join us next time for another episode of Season 2, Stories from the Black Spiritual Diaspora, where we feature another story and conversation, this time with Imam Abdul Malik Merchant. Thanks for listening to Our Seven Neighbors. Please share this podcast and share your photo story with us on social media. You can find us at the IRI on Facebook or Instagram. And if you feel compelled, tell us your story, share a photo, or better yet, share it with someone around you. As the poetry of Lucille Clifton offers, say it clear, and it will be beautiful. See you next time.